At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah. But before we stand to hear the reading of God's Word, I want us to consider the Berean spirit. The most, the most noble in the whole of the New Testament were the Bereans who sought not just to take uh, Paul's word for it, but they searched the Holy Scriptures daily to see what was taught was so. And in light of that, that's the spirit we ought to have when we come to receive God's holy word in preaching, that Berean spirit. So let's stand together. Uh, we'll stand together and we'll read Nehemiah. Chapter 12, starting at verse 31. This is God's holy and infallible word. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on the top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets, and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his kinsmen, Shemaiah, Azrael, Milalai, uh, Mai Nethanel, uh, Judah and Hanani and the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs stood, uh, the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Menayanim, uh, Mikaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with the trumpets, Maaseah, Shemaiah, uh, Eliezer, Uzai, Jehohanan, uh, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah, their leader. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Let's pray together. Help us, we ask, our blessed Father, that by your Holy Spirit and by your word that you would help us to be those who have great joy in what you have done for us. We have been given that greater revelation even through Jesus our Lord. And help us, we pray, as those in this text rejoice with great joy, being even heard from afar. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated.
Why is it that we sing together when we come and gather for worship? It's important that we know why we have certain practices in our church. Especially as the youth in the church grow up, it's especially important for them to know that they should have a principled awareness about why and how they are to worship God. In other words, they worship God not because someone said so to do it that way, or because mom and dad said to do it that way, or because someone they heard at school said to do it that way, but they should worship God in the way that God has instructed in his holy word. We don't want to say, well, that's just always the way that it's been done. Or that's just our tradition. That's why we do it that way. Again, we have to have that Berean spirit that seeks to ensure that our doctrines, our practices, our worship, even our traditions are all rooted in Holy Scripture. Tradition is not a bad thing as long as it's rooted in Holy Scripture. Now, this event described in today's text it was a dedication service for the walls of Jerusalem. I don't know if I've ever been to a dedication service before in, in a particular church, but um, if you remember back in the Old Testament, there was the dedication of that first temple. Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple, they had an immense number of sacrifices offered, and then the glory filled the temple, and they had that blessed, wonderful worship service. That was a dedication service the first worship service in that new temple built by Solomon. Now, uh, I have here in, in your introduction notes, there is a case where if you had a home in the Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy 20, it's in your notes there, you were allowed exemption to, if you were a younger person, you were allowed exemption to go to battle and fight for your nation if you had a house that was newly built and it wasn't yet dedicated. Uh, look, at, look at that. It says, Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. Who is the man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in battle and another man would dedicate it. Um, I guess it was a dedication service, perhaps, for that new home. Um, there, were, there was a dedication service for the wall. It wasn't a new wall, but it was a newly repaired wall. The gates were new, and they had a dedication service to give thanks to God and to say to the Lord, we dedicate, we commit this, what you have given us, to you, O Lord, and in thanksgiving we praise you for what you've done for us. Remember the people under Nehemiah and Ezra were thankful because at formerly, uh, prior to the coming of Nehemiah, the, the walls were broken down in many parts, and the gates were burned with fire. Some believe that those gates had been broken down all the way back since the days of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his siege of Jerusalem. And that what happened is that they then um, had these walls repaired by the work of Nehemiah. You can imagine, after the walls and the gates were repaired, the people were sleeping better at night because they weren't concerned about those coming in through the wall to do them harm as some of the nations surrounding them had threatened. So this, this dedication service, my guess is that it was not a Sabbath worship. It was, a, we can call it a special service of the church, or this Old Testament church. But even though it wasn't necessarily likely a Sabbath um, worship service, it has some instruction unto us for how 
uh, we are to praise our God. As we look at today's text, the main focus is that you are to sing to God with joy. You are to sing to God with joy. We'll see this in two main uh, points. The use of choirs then and now. And secondly, God's command to sing with joy. Let's look at this first main point, the use of choirs then and now. Uh, Verses 31 and 32. Um, It says that I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Uh, Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them. So as we read, there were two great choirs. This is the first great choir along the top of the wall. This first great choir included some musical accompaniment. Uh, Verse 35 says that some of the sons of the priests followed with trumpets. Verse 36 uh, goes on to tell how others had musical instruments of David, the man of God. Now, we're going to go back a little bit to a prior statement from a prior sermon that gives us some of the background for what was going on here. Uh, Verse 27 gives us a summary statement of why they were even having this service. It says in verse 27, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places, all of the countryside, to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Now, I am personally thankful for having accompaniment, musical accompaniment in this church. Because when Denise is not well and she can't, she can't be here and we're having to sing a cappella, that's when I really appreciate Denise greatly. And I'm thankful that God has given her those gifts. And what's interesting, though, I don't know if you're aware of this, that there are some Presbyterians who argue that you should only have one instrument in worship. And they would say, well, you know, the piano is the ideal and you shouldn't have any additional, uh, any additional instruments. Well, in today's text, we find here that there, was, uh, and there were at least four different kinds of instruments in the worship. Now, um, I've been to churches and even OPC churches before where somebody had a trumpet and actually played it where it wasn't drowning out the congregation. And I've been in another church where someone had a violin to go with the piano, and that, was, that went well as well. Um, but you have to be careful with what you do when adding instruments to the church uh, worship. There's an article I was looking at. It's from 2009. It's footnoted there if you want to go back and read it later. It's entitled, Reverence or Joy in Worship. Reverence or, or Joy in Worship. Some people put it as a dichotomy, like one is set against the other. And this is what the author, an OPC pastor, says. Some say, our worship seems so lifeless. Let's revitalize it with some drums and guitar. And others say, no, worship must be marked by reverence. Then the first group counters, shouldn't it be also marked with joy? God, in his word, says that our worship must be genuinely vital, alive, and enlivening. 
And why can it be characterized by both reverence, Hebrews 12, and by joy, Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2? Why then do we have to choose between one or the other? Why not have reverence and joy? Now, for those of you who have been in churches before with electric guitar and drums, and you can't even hear yourself sing, I would say that is not something that is conducive, especially to congregational singing. You have a bunch of people then just standing there, looking and observing as, instead of them worshiping as a congregation, praising God together, they're, they're watching a praise team worship because they can't hear themselves sing in the first place. Such music would be greatly discouraging to congregational singing, and that is contrary to First uh, Corinthians 14.26, which, which says, Let all things be done for edification. First Corinthians 14.26, Let all things be done for edification. If something is hindering you as a congregant from singing, it's not good for your edification and shouldn't be practiced. That's why a certain music shouldn't be used in worship. Now, when you read today's text in Nehemiah 12, at first when I read it, I thought that they were singing on the wall. Maybe they were singing on the wall, two different portions, and then everyone in the middle was hearing the great choirs, one on one side of the wall, one on the other side of the wall. But if I looked, when I looked closer at the text, I found that that's not the case. Um, when you look at verses 38 through 40, um, it, it stops and it shows that uh, as, they, as they stopped at the gate of the guard at the end of verse uh, 40, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. I believe the singing didn't happen until after they got in the, into the house of God. So they, they were having this great procession, and then when they got into the house of God, then this great singing began. When they were in the temple, verse 42 says, the singers sang with uh, Jezreiah, their leader. There was a leader who led the singing. But what was their purpose in singing? Now, if you have a choir in a modern church, the purpose of the choir is that they're going up and doing special music. And everyone is just going to be quiet and listen to the choir while they praise God. And you're going to listen to the choir, give God the glory. And then in some churches, they might clap afterwards. They're, they're spectators of worship rather than participants in worship. But I don't believe that's what happened here. And I love this little portion here. It says that there were some who were not spectators. Verse 43, God had given them you could say all who are present, great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. If it was only the choir singing and not the whole of the people of, uh, of God, you wouldn't have heard such a loud rejoicing from afar. I believe what we have here is that we have a choir leading the entire congregation in singing. When I was in seminary, there was a relatively new graduate pastor, and he proposed an idea. He said if churches do have choirs, the absolute best place to use a choir is at the back of the congregation. You might say, well, why would you have a choir at the back of the congregation? 
Well, the reason is, is because the choir gives how the song should go, and then everyone else tries to match the singing to the choir at the back of the congregation. They are facilitating and helping the worship along. Now, if you want my honest opinion about this, well, honestly, we, we need to all be a choir. That's what God calls us to in the Bible. We are all, every one of us, called to sing to God's glory, to be that choir of God in singing. Because, as our second point says, God commands you to sing with joy. God commands each one of you to sing with joy. Look again at verses uh, 42 through 43. The singers sang with Jezraiah, their leader, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now for some of you it might be hard to have joy when singing because you feel you can't sing at all. Um, Perhaps you don't like your voice. Maybe you feel too embarrassed to sing. Um, perhaps someone told you that you were tone deaf. By the way, that, that calling people tone deaf is something that's highly exaggerated. There are people that really can't sing no matter what, but that's, most people can learn to sing. Um, maybe someone is just fearing someone would laugh at them, but has never laughed at them, but they're just afraid. Um, others, like myself, I have a conductive hearing loss it's a little bit of damage to this inner ear here, and it kind of hinders me with singing, um, makes it more challenging. But it's hard to have joy in singing God, singing to God and giving Him the praise if you lack confidence and training. Um, if you are at least only, or if you're less than halfway proficient with singing, I don't believe you can enjoy singing. For instance, here's, here's a couple of illustrations. Are you going to enjoy rollerblading if every time you get on the rollerblade you fall flat on your face? Even with the pads, you still keep hurting yourself. Are you going to enjoy sports if you totally stink at it? You're not going to enjoy playing a particular sport if you totally stink at it. But if you can learn how to do it in a halfway, um, halfway proficient fashion, then you might learn to enjoy playing a particular sport. But whatever the hindrance, I believe, in American culture, one of the greatest hindrances for us singing praise to God, I believe, is this self-consciousness, being too consumed with, well, what does everyone think of me? Again, the root of the problem in self-consciousness is self. We think too much of ourselves rather than what is pleasing to God or commanded by God. God commands you to sing praise to him. I want us to turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 1. Now, this is not a suggestion. This is not a, a verse that says, do this if you feel like it. It's a command. Verse 1, sing for joy 
In the Lord, O you righteous one, you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praise to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Um, if you are upright, you should desire to sing. You should give God the thanks, it says here, with joy, even a shout of joy. That's not, that's not low volume, that's higher volume. But again, you don't feel comfortable shouting in your singing unless you're, um, unless you're kind of more adept in singing. Why do we sing? For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Because he is faithful, because he's a merciful and good God, that is why we sing, because he is worthy of our praise. Um, look in your notes, I have there written in there, Psalm 149, 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. It says here, in, primarily in this particular psalm, the, the place of interest where we ought to really be the most interested in singing is in the congregation of the godly ones. When we gather for worship with brothers and sisters, that's where we are to sing and give our best singing. But this passage does not exclude singing in private and family worship. Now, this is, these are just two commands under, of, I would say, many. I've heard one estimate saying this could be up to 50 commands of, in the Bible where we are commanded to give God the praise and to sing unto the Lord. Now, considering, again, if you're too shy to vocalize, if your habit is only to move your lips, I believe it's a breaking of the first and second commandments, which says that you should have no other gods before me and that you should not make any idols to bow down and worship them. God doesn't want us to be so consumed with ourselves that we do not give him the praise. That is making an idol of ourselves, especially when we gather to worship. One of the first times I was in seminary, I was giving a, an exhortation, or a, I was in a homiletics class, and obviously I was so amazingly self-conscious and nervous that one of the seminarians whispered to me, it's not about you. <laughs> I was like, in the middle of the message. And you know what? He's absolutely right. Our worship is not about us. It involves us, but ultimately our worship is about him. Our worship is not toward us, that others esteem us. Our worship is that we exalt and lift up the name of God, the Most High. So in a way, you could say, ultimately, it's not about us. It's about Him. Earnestly ask God for His Holy Spirit to help you sanctify the Lord Jesus in your hearts. That you would give Him the praise that He would be your greatest love and not yourself. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says that the love of Christ controls, some translations say compels or constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they 
who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Don't live for yourself. Live for him who died for you. When, you, when it's time for you to sing in worship, don't sing for yourself. Sing for him who died and rose again on your behalf. That's who you're to sing for, not for yourself. It's for him. Now, don't get discouraged. Sometimes it takes years to, to improve in singing ability, but you'll never, ever improve unless you have a desire to improve. It's been taking me years to, to sing halfway. Um, when I talk about being half proficient, I'm almost half proficient, but it, it, it takes years sometimes, but you have to have a desire. And if you ever want uh, some sort of uh, training to pursue uh, vocal lessons of some sort, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit to you there's nothing more humbling than that. But you know what? If you want to improve, sometimes you have to be willing to humble yourself if you want to grow in that area. And I know somebody in particular who ha- he can offer some, some free lessons if you want a couple of free lessons As we look again at today's text, God calls you to sing to him with great joy. We looked at, again, the choirs during the days of Nehemiah, and and now we look at choirs today. I believe, I firmly believe, that we ought to be like a choir. This whole congregation ought to be like a, a wonderful, blessed choir. We are not to be spectators in worship. We are to be uh, participants God commands you to sing with joy. You are commanded to sing even if you don't sing well. I'm I'm sure some of you are familiar with this translation. This is not our translation. I didn't want to use it in the sermon too much. I wasn't, but I'm going to give it anyway. One translation of Psalm 100 verse 1 is um, make a joyful noise to the Lord. It can be translated as a joyful shout. Um, Really, It doesn't have to be magnificent. One of the beauties of congregational singing is that people who are better singers can often carry you along. If you struggle, maybe sit next to somebody who sings well and try to match them, and that'll help you along. And what it's really a it's a beautiful illustration of the church and the life of the church. Sometimes the stronger helps the weaker along, and and that's a beautiful picture, um, I believe, of what we have, and even in congregational singing. Ultimately, give him the praise, because Christ is worthy of the praise. What more could God have done for you to make you want to praise him than to give his only begotten son to suffer and die so that you might live and have eternal life? What more could God give you to make you want to praise him? He gave, he gave us his best. Therefore, we should seek to at least give him what we can when we worship him in song. Let's pray together. We thank you, our blessed Lord. We thank you for what you have given us in Christ. 
Help us, we pray, to not live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us, who rose again from the dead for, for us, who ascended into heaven for us. Help us to exalt and lift up and praise this glorious, blessed Savior, Jesus our Lord. We thank you, O Father, that you are a good and merciful, a blessed God, a good God, a loving God, and you have demonstrated your love unto us through Jesus our Lord. Help us, we pray, to exalt and lift up Jesus. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. For our um, hymn of dedication, let's turn to 247. We praise you, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. We'll stand and sing 247. Let's